to Talking APAC. This is the fifth episode in the series brought to you by APAC. And APAC stands for Australian Psychology Accreditation Council. We're the organisation that ensures the quality of psychology programmes offered by higher education providers in Australia. APAC acknowledges the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the traditional caretakers of the land, and we pay our respects to Elders past and present. My name is David Glanz and I'm recording this podcast on the land of the Wurundjeri people, one of the five Kulin nations. Now, among other topics so far this series, we've looked at how and why the assessment of higher education psychology programmes happens, how our accreditation assessment committee works and the role of assessors. So it's probably about time we looked at the process from the point of view of the higher education provider whose programmes are undergoing assessment. What's it like to have your learning and teaching, your facilities and your curriculum examined and to have staff and students chat with our assessors? Is it a bit stressful? Is it useful? Or is it a bit of both? Joining me today is Associate Professor Linda Byrne. Linda is Deputy Head of the School of Psychology at Deakin University, where she was a key participant in the assessment process that APAC carried out there in 2020. Earlier this year, she became an APAC assessor, one of a panel of experts available to assist with assessing psychology programmes, providing, of course, there's no conflict of interest. So she's well-placed to share her learnings with psychology academics and administrators across the higher education sector. So welcome, Linda. Thank you, David. And uh, I'm also coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people as well. Now, in 2020, as I mentioned, you went through an assessment process um, there at Deakin, and now you're an APAC assessor. So is it a case of poacher turned gamekeeper? Well, David, I'd rather like to think of it as, um, you know, the institutions at APAC as being opposite, rather than opposite sides of the fence, I'd like to think of us as being opposite sides of the same coin, perhaps, that we're working together to ensure our programs are not only of high quality, but that we're also ensuring that the key standards are being met for our profession. So in all seriousness, it must have been a big advantage to have seen the process from the inside so recently. Very much so. So I think that, uh, you know, going through the process yourself as an institution, it, um, it's, it's an excellent opportunity to look at the programs. But then on the flip side of being an assessor, to see all of that work and to, to have that appreciation of the time that it takes. I mean, I obviously know how much time it takes to write one, but to actually review one as well was a really interesting perspective. So was 2020 your first experience of an APAC assessment? It was. So in 2015, which was Deacon's prior assessment, I wasn't part of the leadership group at that time. So I had contributed peripherally from the point of view as a, of a, um, a course coordinator, a unit coordinator at Deakin, but I hadn't been so actively involved in that assessment. When you heard we were coming, apart from Flee for the Hills, what was your response and how did you begin to prepare? Well, it was certainly a big job. And particularly if you're part of an institution like Deakin that has multiple programs, there is a lot of work to do. And also, as I mentioned, we had a, 
change of leadership in the school. And because I hadn't been part of that leadership group when we underwent the 2015 accreditation cycle, uh, it just meant that there was a, a very different lens being applied. And then, of course, we had the standards changing in 2019. So in some ways, it was a bit of a double whammy, really. Uh, now, of course, we had been working towards implementation of the new standards, so it wasn't as if we were starting from scratch. Um, in terms of pre preparation, I think the key was really to ensure that we carefully reviewed the application form, looked at the new standards and evidence guide, and then of course there was a lot of consultation with our course teams re regarding the revisions that needed to occur, the lines of responsibility, etc. And what resources did we at APAC make available to you and your colleagues to prepare first for your written submissions and then our site visit, which I assume given it was during the pandemic, was presumably a virtual one. That's right. Well, our submission was due at the end of March, so it was right at the pandemic, and I was at, at, for part of that at a workshop in, uh, in Indonesia, in Bali, writing the application as I was attending a, uh, a series of workshops and listening carefully to what was happening in the world uh, as things looked like they were going to be shutting down very soon. So yes, we did have a virtual uh, site visit. We had been preparing for the in-person visit and we actually designed a pretty neat SharePoint site to house all of the documents. And it, I'd actually designed it as an easy way to sort of navigate sharing the information. And as it turned out, that actually made it relatively easy for us to pivot to the virtual visit because of the way that we'd set up our documentation. In terms of what was provided to us, of course, we had the packages around the application, the guidelines, uh, and there was some other additional information that uh, APAC sent to us to help us to prepare. And then as we got closer to the, the time, there was more communication, lots of open communication around what to expect, things like the agenda was set, etc. So there was quite a lot of uh, communication that happens between the institution and APAC leading up to that site visit. And look, my colleagues in the assessment team do a magnificent job, but we're always willing to take feedback on how things could be done better. Were there things that you found could have been improved upon, things that could have been explained better that we would benefit from hearing hearing about? Look, I really don't think so. It, as you say, it's a great team and the communication is very clear. It's clear that you know this is this is what you guys do and do it really well. And so I, I can't think of a, a, a time when I would have wanted a different level of communication or more information really sent to us. A lot of the job is really on the institutions to make sure that our documentation is together and at any time I had issues. So for example, institutions will know about, for example, the, the, the uh, student-staff ratio um, spreadsheet, which has, is a bit tricky to navigate but the team were always on hand to assist with when, when people get stuck uh, around how that, that might work. That's good to hear. And on that uh, ratio you just mentioned, we've just released a calculator, which can be found on our website under the resources section for education providers. So we're trying to improve all the time as, as we go along. Yes. Now, I'm just wondering, your, did your colleagues, both academic and professional, colleagues find the experience interesting or helpful or annoying or, or, or what? Well, it probably depends on who you ask. 
So for this accreditation, given the change, as I said, in leadership, I felt that it was really important that one person took the lead and have oversight over the whole process. And I really think that that's a, a learning for other institutions, that you do need someone that, that holds that responsibility. Now, that's not to say that you don't have contributions from many, many people, but it is important that there's one person that, that has the oversight of the whole process. And so then I tried to ensure that we started the whole process a good six to eight months before the submission was due. But even with good planning, that last couple of months always feels like a rush. There is a lot to do. And even if there is time that's allocated in the academic or professional staff's workload, it, there's still a lot to fit in because it's not like your other job stops uh, during that time. I'd say that the academics who were involved in terms of the coming along to the site visits, that they really quite enjoyed the process. They found it interesting uh, to, to hear about what they were being asked. But I'm sure that they found it annoying from time to time when I would send urgent requests for information in very busy times. Mm, I, can, I can appreciate that. Other than the feedback you got officially from APAC, did you find this to be a learning process internally? Did you find out things about yourself, yourselves that you perhaps hadn't realised before? Look, I think we have a very good understanding of our programs and we have a process of basically continual renewal and, and, and review of our programs. We have internal, like most universities, internal review processes that also happen every five years. So there's many opportunities for us to have a look at our offerings. Now, obviously, with programs like our clinical program and our uh, industrial organisational program, it's, we have very tight teams that work very closely with the profession and the professional standards. So they are all, always looking at new ways and the best ways to provide that information to our trainees and make sure it's captured in our course. We also have an incredible learning and teaching team. So we sometimes feels like we're in a constant state of renewal. So we have a very good understanding of the content of the course. And then it wasn't really particularly difficult then to map that against the competencies that we have because we have very good mapping already of things like our unit learning outcomes and our course learning outcomes. So then mapping that against the competencies was just that kind of next step, which then allows us to see if indeed there are gaps or where we could perhaps um, have information represented slightly differently. So certainly a good learning process because it's probably outside of the course reviews that happen at the university level. It's that really one in five years where you're looking at every single course, all the content, all the assessments. So it's always incredibly valuable to, to, to revisit that within your courses, even if they're undergoing review quite frequently. Now, at the end of the day, this is all about the students, the students getting the best quality education so that in turn that they can go on if they choose to practice, they can deliver the best possible service to the public. Students can speak to assessors too. They're obviously very important stakeholders. In your experience, were students willing to take part or was it only those with very strong positive or negative opinions who volunteered to participate? Look, we're very fortunate to have a great, in student, a great student engagement at Deakin and our university has had the highest 
level of student satisfaction for something like 10 years in a row. And then within the university, our School of Psychology does particularly well in terms of student evaluations. So we know we've got happy students, we know we've got satisfied students. Uh, and so we have student ambassadors and representatives across all levels of our program. So we didn't really have any problems identifying people to participate. Now, of course, what happens when the students get in the room with the assessors, you know, we're not there to control that at all. We believe our programs speak for ourselves. We believe that we are very student focused across what we do. And I think that was borne out. I don't think that we had any feedback regarding problematic interactions with our students or experiences that students would like to be different. Okay, that's good to hear. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, um, and we're literally talking about 2020 vision here, would you have approached the assessment differently? And if so, why? Oh, I think 100% I've approached it differently. But I think it's only because now I really understand the process from end to end. So the setup that we used in the 2020 assessment means that documentation can now be uploaded as we make changes. And I think that's a, a really good idea if you're thinking about other, other institutions that are thinking about this process, just thinking about it in the year that it's due is going to put everyone under pressure. This is a continual process. And I think that if you set up good, uh, very good processes, then it's, it's a continual kind of, uh, a, a continual effort that you're putting in across that. So I'm hoping that as we make changes, that that's, uh, is more straightforward when we come for our next round of accreditations in 2025. And what sort of things did you learn about yourselves during the whole process? Did it generate useful insights? Look, I think so. I mean, that where I think that the, the new standards have are a lot less prescriptive in terms of what they expect from institutions compared to the previous standards. But there are some changes that meant that we had to review very carefully where the content was uh, and content that we had put into the course to address previous standards were probably a bit lacking, uh, particularly, I think, in relation to the uh, cross-cultural competency, that, that cultural competency, particularly in undergraduate. And it's a common area of institutions where they've been grappling for some time about how we properly embed this, not just have sort of token information in there. But luckily we had already, we, we knew that that was an area where we needed to do more work. We'd actually constructed a whole unit, but it wasn't a core unit. So that wasn't going to cut it in terms of our meeting the accreditation standards. But what did happen, uh, because of the standards and also then because we hadn't quite met the standards in relation to that particular area for our undergraduate course, we were already engaged in a university-wide process to have a look at what is at Deakin, our, our graduate learning outcome eight, which is around global citizenship. So the university had started and paused because of the pandemic, a project asking for courses that would go undergo a process of embedding GLOW 8 across their whole course. And so when it came time for the uh, accreditation and we saw that we, we knew that that was going to be a condition for our undergraduate program, 
we had already engaged with the university to be part of the GLOW8 process. So by the time the reports came out, by the end of that year, we clearly met that standard and we'd done it in a very considered way. So engaging our Nikiri, which is our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education group at Deakin and we worked very hard to make sure that this was an approach that was going to be long term and that was meaningful across our course. So that was a really key learning that there are, you have to reflect on the reasons that we have these standards, that these are, are not just um, you know arbitrary, that they're important for our student learning outcomes. So, so that was an important learning that we took out of that and a really responsive way of, of engaging with that information and making sure that our students have that strongly across the courses. You mentioned uh, conditions and accreditation often comes with conditions that need to be met in following months. So sort of a multi-part question. First of all, the conditions that were imposed on you by APAC and I think everybody get some conditions, it's not unusual. Did you find them to be reasonable? Absolutely. So uh, as I mentioned, the good thing about the process is if you engage with it properly, you should know what those conditions are likely to be. It's not something you can really fudge and and pretend is, is in the course. If it's not in your unit learning outcomes, if it's not assessed, then you know that you're going to be asked to show where that's happening. So we already had a plan because we uh, we knew where the gaps were and so we're really working towards them and could talk to the assessors about the fact that these are our plans and they said, that looks great, what we just need is evidence of that. And so we were able to provide the evidence for that by following the plan that we'd actually presented in the accreditation site visits. So it was absolutely uh, worth doing. We knew where the problems were, as everyone really should by the end of that process, and we were well on the way to making sure that they were they were there. And of course, the, we had, it was only 2019 that the standards came out, but there had been some advanced discussions around what they were likely to be. So there were some parts of our course that uh, or courses where we already met those other standards, we knew they were important, they had been embedded, and there were others where we were just not quite as far along. And I guess it's just a, a, a good check to go. We knew that that was where the gaps are. We just need a bit more feedback around that and we were well on the way. So we had met all our conditions by the end of that year. So there was nothing that caught you by surprise. It's actually a, a collaborative, it's a conversation, isn't it? It is a conversation, that's right. And it, it's the onus is also on the institutions to make sure that they understand where their programs are meeting the competencies, are meeting the standards and where they, they might not be. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that the conditions shouldn't be onerous. There should be a, a, a real understanding of why they're there and why you haven't met them. And so, you know, as as the programs are coming up for accreditation now, some years past the the 2019 standards, that should happen less often because you know programs should already be well on the way to making sure they're meeting all of those standards by now. Now. Looking back, what advice would you give to those who are getting ready for an assessment exercise, especially to those for whom it will be the first time 
And obviously, given that you may be one of the assessors interstate <laughs> outside Victoria, what kind of biscuits do you prefer? <laughs> I like Tim Tams, like everyone, David. <laughs> um, I would say that you need to start early. You know, make sure that you have cl a clear plan regarding the responsibilities and ensure that staff, both professional and academic, have sufficient workload allocated for the tasks. And that's particularly important as we're facing you know, quite a lot of challenges in the higher education sector with regard to changes in staffing and, and institutions undergoing changes because of um, you know, some of the things that have been wrought on us by the pandemic. So making sure that people start early, making sure that there are sufficient resources that have been allocated to the task, looking at it as a learning opportunity to see what is working in your program and what might need improving. Try to be uh, collaborative. So looking at it as an opportunity for that collaboration rather than some sort of adversarial process. Fantastic. All right. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Well, just kind of pulling on that same thread. Don't be scared of the process. You know, it is meant to be collaborative, not combative. So I think going in understanding that we all need to be on the same page with making sure that our, our programs are at that standard to ensure that we're meeting those competencies for our profession and we're graduating students that are ready for the workforce. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today, Linda. If people want to read more, head to our website and we're at psychologycouncil, or one word, .org.au. Otherwise, we look forward to you joining us for our next episode. So thanks, Linda, and goodbye. Thanks, David.